Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, going to talk about some world news now. Um, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has now left Taiwan. Uh, it was a pretty brief stayover, wasn't it? Um, she arrived there yesterday, a visit that really ratcheted up tensions with China. She told reporters on her way out that she and other members of Congress in her delegation showed they are not interested in abandoning their commitment to the self-governing island of Taiwan. Whether it's certain insecurities on the part of the president of China as to his own political situation that he's rattling a saber, I don't know. But I, it doesn't really matter. What matters to us is that we salute the successes of Taiwan. We work together for the security of Taiwan. Well, they certainly have rattled the saber in response in China. All kinds of action being taken, military exercises and some very sharp rhetoric. So um, whenever we talk about this part of the world, there's one guy I rely on who I think uh, is, he, he, when you talk experts, this is the expert of the experts, Gordon Holden, um, who is the Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science and Adjunct Professor at the Alberta School of Business at the U of A. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate your time, sir. You're far too kind. Thank you, Shay. Um, now, to start, why don't we just back up a bit here? It's a visit. I mean, there's been other visits. Why did this set off China to the point that it did? I mean, long before she arrived, they had started with the rhetoric. Why were they so upset by this? Well, I think in the beginning, they're hoping to prevent it by having a strong verbal reaction. Um, they, of course, they, meaning China, is increasing pressure in Taiwan. They want to achieve their reunification of Taiwan. I think President Xi Jinping would like to do it during his time in office. Uh, But they're not making a lot of progress to date. And so when the number three in the U.S. government comes to Taiwan, it's a big deal for the Taiwanese. And it is, in a different way, a big deal for China as well. And as you say, the the pushback started as soon as there was, you know, talk that this might happen. And the U.S. decided they were going to go ahead and do it anyway. Why bother? I mean, is it to invite the aggravation? Is it a show of support for Taiwan? What's the U.S. motivation here? Well, I think that the... um, the U.S. really, the goal of both Pelosi and the U.S. government generally is to shore up support for democracy, for the Indo-Pacific concept of, of democratic countries within that arc of the of the Pacific, of Southern Asia and Eastern Asia. Uh, but the, it's complicated. The Biden administration uh, was not all that keen on the visit at this time. Yeah. Uh, President Biden said, look, uh, the Defense Department doesn't want this. Um, Biden uh, himself, I think we presume his administration did did, this, did not want this, but it's what they got, and uh, I think that kind of of, um, of um, pressure from Biden did not work with Pelosi, and it may have been also that Biden was trying to say, well, look, I don't control the legislative branch. I did my best. She's coming anyway. It's hard to know the backstory, but it wasn't as if the U.S. administration was united by any means on what they were doing. Just the opposite. They were all over the field. And I think that may show a little bit of U.S. indecision, even a little bit of U.S. weakness in some extent. Now, in response, China has said there will be all kinds of military exercises carried out, some of them within what would be considered, I guess, Taiwan's um, 
waters, uh, things like that. So how how serious should we view this response from China? Well, I think in some ways it's pro forma. They know they couldn't prevent the visit. They tried. Um, it's taken place. They will push hard and they will go further. And the danger is, I think, that each time there's something they really don't like or a visit of a high, high order, the, their reaction gets ratcheted up. And that becomes then the new normal. The only good thing, perhaps, is that none of the parties, not China, not Washington, and not Taipei, want a war. So I think there is still, and they both have competent leaderships that are capable of planning. And there's not, there's not a desire on China to start a war immediately. They could do so if they wished. Who knows who would win? They might. They might not. So there's a, And Xi Jinping has got a very busy fall coming. He's got his party congress. We've got COVID issues still. We've got economic issues. He doesn't need a full-blown crisis. On the other hand, they couldn't just let it pass. Right, exactly, yeah, without some sort of response. Um, going back to the U.S. motivation, there's some people that we were talking about yesterday, and some listeners were saying, and maybe there's some point to hear in terms of Canada, when we talk about our response to China, I see us as you know being bullied on the playground quite a bit by China. They do what they want. They don't take us seriously. Could that be as simple as that with the U.S. saying you're not going to bully us? We still are the big guy on the block and we're going to call our own shots and we don't care. You can make all the noise you want, but we're still going to do what we want to do. I mean, is there sort of a power struggle in terms of soft power that way? I think there is still in some extent. And uh, China is a is a great power, conducts itself as such, and is not willing in any time in the foreseeable future to accept uh, a second-class status. Uh, vis-a-vis any other country. Uh, they're very used to getting their way in Asia, and they still will be able to for some time. Uh, so I think there is a sort of a soft power on top of the hard power. If you didn't have that hard power, that U.S. capacity, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And as to bullying, the smaller you are, there is a physics of power. Smaller countries, be it us or Australia or Taiwan, tend to get pushed around. Uh, by the great powers, and that certainly includes China. And Gordon, this has been going on for a long time, th- this push and pull over Taiwan, and, you know, Hong Kong to a lesser extent as well. Ultimately, does this come to a head? Do we do we get to a point where this b- goes one way or the other, or is it just sort of this, this pattern that we've been locked into for a while here? Well, we've been locked into it for a long time. I mean, the the um, Nationalist Party came to Taiwan in 1949. So this is a leftover, to some extent, from the Civil War. Um, between the PLA and the nationalist government. It's been around literally for decades, almost since the end of the Second World War. And, and the question is, you're quite right to ask, is it going to come to a head? There's always a risk of that. To me, the status quo isn't perfect. Taiwanese don't get all they want. Yeah. Chinese certainly don't get what they want. But I like the status quo because it preserves the peace. And once you launch into, as we see now in the Ukraine, once they're into a war situation, highly dangerous superpowers confrontation uh, i would my hope would be that certainly hasn't been realized as yet my hope would be that in a certain point of time there'll be a change of government in china towards something more easy that we can more easily live with and taiwanese can live with and then you might have some sort of a grand bargain compromise but we're not there yet so i view we just let's hang on hope that we can we can tiptoe through these crises because the alternative of an all-out war over Taiwan is unthinkable. And as you said, neither side wants that, so they'll put up with a fair bit of saber-rattling and bellicose rhetoric. As long as they don't get the shots fired, it's all good. That would be our hope. Of course, yeah. nothing is certain. And uh, we saw 
For example, in 2001, the U.S. aircraft collided with a Chinese fighter jet. Pilots killed. There's high tension for a while. And it is one of my points of nervousness. And I've talked to some U.S. Navy uh, captains in this regard. And when when you're maneuvering at high speed in shallow waters or in your aircraft that are approaching and fainting, there's always the risk of of danger of a collision or, or of an issue. Imagine, say, a U.S. destroyer cut in half by a Chinese vessel or vice versa. Yeah. We'd be then into a full-blown crisis that might be hard to control. It might be hard to control. And that's one of the concerns I have. Yeah, and I think that's shared. We've talked to experts. You know, when you talk about Ukraine and Russia in terms of how realistic is a is a nuclear incident, well, it, it in likelihood it would be an accident. It would be a, a, a misreading of a situation by some human being. It would be something like that. You're right. When, when tensions are this high and there's this much activity, the chance of an accident happening and triggering something much bigger go up exponentially. Exactly. And if you see a missile coming towards you, is this accidentally fired? Is it really a missile? Uh, how do you react? You may have only seconds, or the machine controlling it may only have seconds to react. So I'm not saying it isn't without danger. Yes. But right now, what's saving us, I think, is that none of the parties want a conflict. They all have good reasons to avoid one or at least put it off. And let's just hope they put it off for a long time. Yeah, interesting stuff. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time.